Lesson 7 of our study on the person of Christ and introduction. Uh, We are going to be looking at just the first half of this chapter entitled Post-Chalcedonian Clarifications Regarding Christ, pages 109 through 118. I think I have all of that right on the heading of our outline here. Let's open in a word of prayer and then we will begin. Father in heaven, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for the Lord's Day and the refreshment that it brings to our our bodies and our souls. We thank you that we are able to gather together to encourage one another and to fix our attention in a special way on you and on Christ whom you have sent. I pray that you would receive worship today. I pray also that you would feed us and fill us. And even in this Sunday school hour, I pray that you would increase our understanding of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's in His name we pray. Amen. I wanted to um, give an overview really quickly of this whole chapter, uh, very very briefly. Uh, We are going to look at four post-Chalcedonian developments to round out our Christological orthodoxy. Uh, That's, I think, the language of Wellam. Um, Remember, there was the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. There was the the council at Chalcedon in 451 AD. These councils were addressing the question of how should we think of Christ, how should we speak of Him, among other things. And uh, they were very helpful to us. But here in this chapter, we're going to look at the period of church history from Chalcedon onward and see how the church brought even greater clarity to our understanding of uh, Christ and his natures being united in one person. So in this chapter, we will consider four different concepts. First of all, the in-hypostatic union. The next heading is the principle of communicatio idiomatum, the relationship of the two natures in one person is what this deals with here. Then we will look at what is called the extra. It's often called the the extra-Calvinisticum, a reference to John Calvin there, this doctrine oftentimes being attributed to him, but as I understand it, that's not really accurate. It existed in the church long, long, long before Calvin, uh, but like other things, he's the one that it's attributed to probably because of the clarity with which he spoke on the subject and his popularity. And then, oh, I can't even say this, um, even when I practice some of these words, I know that when I'm behind the pulpit or up in front of people, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll butcher them. Diotheletism, I think I, I got that. And this is the affirmation of there being two wills in Christ, two wills. Um, there is the divine will and the human will in Christ. Uh, human, human beings have wills. It's a part of our nature. We have this capacity to will. And God has the capacity to will as well, uh, not in the same way as humans do, right? God wills in a way that humans uh, do do not. Um, We can talk about that when we get to it. But in the one person of Christ and in his two natures, there are two wills, the human and the divine will united in the one person. So we'll come to talk about all of those things. But Uh, It's too much to deal with all in one short lesson, and so we will only consider the first two, uh, the in-hypostatic union and the idea of communicatio idiomatum. Okay, so let's move through this. Um, Let this develop. 
hopefully we'll have some time for discussion. <clears throat> uh, let us begin here with quoting Wellam on page 109. Chalcedon left us with a number of unanswered questions, he says. For example, given the definition stress on the integrity of Christ's two natures without change or confusion, must not Christ also have two persons? So if Christ has two natures and they are not changed or confused, not mixed up with one another in any way, must not Christ also have two persons? Because after all, we strongly connect the idea of persons and nature, do we not? Um, God has one nature, the divine nature, and in Him eternally there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And every human being that you've ever thought of, um, you know that there is the human nature, but closely connected to that, that, that idea of nature is personhood. It's hard to imagine a, a nature, a human nature, without a human person. They, in other words, they always, they always go together, don't they? At the moment of conception, uh, there is in the womb of the mother a human nature, body and soul, but there is also in that very same moment uh, created a human person. So person and nature, though we can distinguish the two things intellectually, mentally, um, they, they always come together. That's So you could see why we have kind of a a problem here with our Christology to be addressed. If in Christ there are two natures, the divine and the human, then are there not also two persons, two acting subjects within Christ? So that is the question really that the in-hypostatic union addresses. How do we affirm the integrity of two natures and the unity of the person without veering towards Nestorianism, which was an error in the early church that said that Christ had two persons? How can a nature not have a corresponding person or subject? Now, the Chalcedonian uh, definition, uh, the Chalcedonian uh, definition made use of the word anhypostasia, anhypostasia, meaning that Christ's human nature, Christ's human nature did not have a hypostasis or person. We learned this in the last lesson. Chalcedon um, clarified, rightly so, that when we think of uh, Jesus Christ, we are to think of him as having two natures, the divine nature and the human nature. But his, but, but who is the person acting through these two natures? Who is the person acting through these two natures? Who is the acting subject? It is not some man, some independent man, but it is the person of the Son, the eternal Son of God, who assumes a human nature and therefore continues to act as he always has through the divine nature. Nothing changes there, but begins at the moment of conception to also act through this human nature, body and soul, which he has assumed. And Chalcedon in those days used the term, the term anhypostasia to emphasize that Christ's human nature did not have a hypostasis or person of its own. And Wellam notes that Chalcedon could mistakenly leave the impression that there is something lacking in Christ's humanity, therefore. 
whenever you think of a person, you think of a divine nature with a person. So is something lacking in Christ's personhood? What did the Chalcedonian definition intend to affirm and deny by its use of an hypostasia? Chalcedon did not intend to minimize Christ's full humanity, is the first thing that must be said. Secondly, its intent was to affirm that when the Son became human, He did not assume or take to Himself a fully existing individual man, that is, a human person and nature. It's a very important statement there. When, when, when the Son of God assumed, uh, when the Son became human, He did not take to Himself a fully existing individual man, that is, a human person and nature. So there was not a person that existed in the womb of the Virgin Mary or at any point thereafter that the Son of God took to Himself at, at any point. I said, let this develop, and I hope that by the end of all of this, it'll be clear to you. Instead, the Son assumed a human nature, and He added that human nature to His person. Instead, the Son assumed a human nature, and He added that human nature to His person. The fourth thing that is said here regarding what the Chalcedonian definition intended is that it taught the theological truth that the two natures are not individual agents. Natures do not act. Only persons act. When we talk about persons, we are talking about subjects that act through natures. And in Christ, it is the Son who lives and acts in both natures. By its use of anhypostasia, Chalcedon rightly taught that the Son became human not by adopting an existing human person, but by taking on a new mode of existence as man via a human nature. Throughout this study, I've been just pressing this idea with you that we must distinguish in our minds between nature and person. And I've done it by simply asking you over and over again, what are you? And you say, I'm a human. And then I ask you a slightly different question, who are you? And then you would tell me your name. Uh, humanity is something that we all share in common. We, we share a nature in common. And the human nature is this. Human beings are body and soul. Our bodies have parts, and so too are, do our souls. Our souls have parts. We have capacities. We have the, this ability to do certain things in our soul. We have the capacity to think. We have minds. We have the capacity to feel emotion. We have affections. We have this capacity to make choices, rational choices. We have wills. So human beings have these faculties or these capacities. It's a part of our human nature. It's the what. It's the what. If I asked you, what are you, you would say, I am a human. And what you would be telling me is that you have a human body. You don't have, a, you don't have any other kind of body. There are different types of bodies, aren't there, in the world? To go home and look at your dog and you go, that's a living being, but it's not a human. And why is it not a human? Well, it does not have a human body, nor does it have a human soul. It has capacities of its own, 
but it, 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 a dog does not have the same capacities that a human has. It has the ability to think and to will and maybe even to feel emotion to some degree, I guess, but not at all in the same way that human beings have that ability. So a dog does not have a soul in the sense that a human has a soul. You understand? So when I ask you, what are you, and you say human, you, you are meaning that you have these things. You, you have a human body, a physical body with human characteristics. All of our bodies have the same basic shape, though we look somewhat different. We, we have basically the same parts, physically speaking, and we may say the same thing about the human soul. We have the same capacities. We have the same abilities, more or less. We have the ability to think, to feel, and to, do, to will, to make choice. We have mind, will, we have affections. You, you understand all of that. That's all nature talk. That's all the answer to the question, what are you? Now, if I were to ask you again the question, who are you? You would respond with a name. And there you are kind of getting at this idea of person. You are an, a, a person. There is something about you that acts, that, that is the acting subject, and you act in your own unique way through the mind, will, and affections, and ultimately the body that God has given to you. So I've been trying to press this idea with you that we must distinguish between nature and person. We must distinguish between these two things, but we cannot separate them ultimately, right? Because when persons are brought into existence... They are brought into existence, body and soul, and they are, in fact, persons from the moment of conception. And that's the thing that we're wrestling with here now as we come to Christ. We're, we're, we're wrestling with the question, how should we think of Him? Uh, did, did He have something less than a true human nature? No, He was fully human. He had a body. He had a soul, mind, will, and affections. Was He less than something less than God? No, He had the divine nature as well. But what about His person? Where did, his, where did his person come from? Was there an existing person that Christ sidled up next to in the incarnation? So that there's two natures and two persons acting in the one Christ? Nestorianism, no. Did, did the Son of God, the second person, notice the second person of the Trinity, did, did the Son of God uh, take to himself a human nature in this way? There was a person acting through a soul and a body already, and the Son came and kicked him out. So that now it's the person of the Son, one person acting through two natures, but the, the other person was ejected or, or adopted somehow. No, that's adoptionism or a form of it. No. Uh, what this, this um, clarification, the use of the term in hypostasia, is supposed to do is to, to make the point that from the moment of conception, that miraculous conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the acting subject or the person acting through the human nature of Christ was the Son from the moment of conception. Uh, it, it's, it's really, I think, fascinating to think about. We're here trying to be very precise, but the precision is important because ultimately it affects our understanding of Christ and what it is that He has done for us to earn our salvation. Given the negative, uh, given the negative connotation of the word, uh, and here I think it is a reference to an hypostasia. This means without 
a person. So it is a negative word, isn't it, given the prefix? Um, the question is, is there a better way of stating it? And by the Second Council of Constantinople, 553, this should bring you a little bit com- of comfort. It took the church almost 550 years um, to refine its speech concerning Christ. Uh, it's not that everyone was in error before this, but it's that this is a refinement. Over time, the church is learning how to speak with more precision concerning Christ. In hypostasia, by this time, uh, was the word that was enlisted, and since then it has been used by theologians to clarify how Jesus is one person who subsists in two natures. Instead of thinking of Christ's human nature as without a person, that is without an hypostasis, we should think of it as having its person in, in uh, the Son, so the language of in hypostasis, by whom it is assumed and to whom it is joined. Christ's human nature is not, Christ's human nature is not impersonal. Instead, it is more accurately impersonal, since it is individualized as the humanity of God the Son. I'm going to continue and then make comment. This becoming of the incarnation does not imply that God, as God, indwells or is metamorphosized into a man, but that God, the Son, subsists personally as a man. This is well, I'm quoting another author named Davidson. The Son continues to subsist, uh, to exist and, and to act. The Son continues to subsist in the same identical divine nature with the Father and the Spirit, but at the point of conception, the Son becomes the hypostasis of the human nature or the person of the human nature. It's the Son who lives a fully human life. It's the Son who lives a fully human life. Nevertheless, in all that Christ does for us as our Redeemer and New Covenant Head, His work is truly a divine work because His humanity subsists in the person of the Son who lives and acts for us. I I, I do hope you're reading this book, um, either ahead of time or after the, the, uh, the teachings that I present to you. Uh, this is the kind of stuff you really need to read, and you need to read it slowly, and you need to think as you read. It's hard to digest if the, if the only way you're hearing it is in this form. So please do read this book, but the language that is used here is, is very precise. It's very helpful. The concept of in hypostasia was dogmatized at the Second Council of Constantinople, 553. In hypostasia became standard in the church in the East, uh, through men like John of Damascus in the West, it was employed by men like Thomas Aquinas. The Reformers also picked this up and used this language, and the post-Reformation Protestant scholastics also. There are four important truths that follow from the, this use of in hypostasia, and hopefully these bring some clarity. First, Jesus is personal as a man, owing to the eternal Son uniting Himself to and assuming a human nature. So Jesus is a personal being. He does not just have a human nature only, but is is a personal human 
But who is the person acting through the human nature of Jesus? Who is the person acting through the human nature of Jesus? The Son. God with us. To me, when I think about this, it brings God closer. It, it, it makes me realize that, wow, we really do have God with us. We really do have this, this, this faithful high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, being tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He, he suffered. And, and when I say he, who am I referring to? Who am I, when I say he, who am I, who suffered? Who suffered? Jesus suffered, but who's the person? The Son of God suffered. And that sounds like a blasphemous thing to say, doesn't it? Because we have learned in previous studies that God cannot suffer. God cannot be tempted. God cannot change. God does not have passions Etc. We've learned all about that. But when, when I press this to you and I say, who, He suffered for us and therefore can sympathize to us, and who is He? And I press you to go as deeply as you can in answer to that question, you must eventually say, it is the Son of God who suffered. But He suffered for us not through His divine nature, because the divine nature cannot suffer. He suffered for us through the human nature which he has assumed in the incarnation. It's marvelous. And that's what I mean when I say it brings God closer. It, 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 it was not the divine nature that assumed a human nature. Are you with me? It was not the divine nature that assumed a human nature. It was the Son who assumed a human nature. It was the person of the Son who at the Incarnation began to act through the human nature that He assumed. So no damage is done to the nature of God. No change is brought about in the the divine nature. Uh, But rather, God, the second person of the triune God, began to act through the human nature of Christ, body, soul, body, mind, will, and affections. Um, So, Jesus is personal as a man, but this is owed to the eternal Son uniting Himself to and assuming a human nature. Second, the incarnation is a sovereign act of the triune God that terminates on the Son alone. The incarnation is a sovereign act of the triune God that terminates on God alone. So the incarnation is a triune act. What is meant there? Um, how did the Son of God become incarnate? Well, uh, the power of the Most High overshadowed Mary. It's the triune God who brings about the incarnation. He, he is conceived not by Joseph, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. The incarnation is a triune act, but it terminates on Christ alone. In other words, who specifically became incarnate? Who was it? Not the Father. The Father did not become incarnate. Not the Spirit. The Spirit did not become incarnate. Who became incarnate? The Scriptures are very consistent on this point. It was the Son who became incarnate. It was the Word that became flesh, John 1.14. Not the other divine persons, nor 
the divine nature, as I've already said. The scriptures are very clear on this. Whenever the incarnation is talked about in detail in the scriptures, it is the, it is the Son who becomes incarnate. It is the Word, in other words, who becomes incarnate. Not the Father or Spirit, and not the divine nature. The divine nature does not become anything. It cannot change. It's the person of the Son who takes to himself a human nature and becomes the acting subject in that human nature. Third, Christ's human nature has everything any other human nature has in its unfallen condition, except independent personal existence apart from the Son. That's a helpful statement. So, did Christ have a true body? Yes. A true human body. Did He have a true human reasonable soul, mind, will, and affections? Yes. And we'll come to talk about the fact that He had a will, a human will, in, in, in this chapter later to clarify that point. Everything, every capacity that we have as human beings, the capacity to reason, the capacity to feel, the capacity to act upon choice, will Christ had in His human nature, and He had a body like ours too. So, Christ's human nature has everything any other human has in its unfallen condition, except independent personal existence apart from the Son. The except there is making the point that there was no person, there was no human person independent of the Son that was either adopted or kicked out or sidled up next to in the humanity of Christ, but rather from the moment of conception, the person, the acting subject in Christ was the eternal Son of God. As Herman Bovink notes, it is the Son who as subject lived, thought, willed, acted, suffered, died, and so on, in and through it, that is the human nature, with all constituent con- constituents, capacities, and energies. So, all of these capacities that we have, Christ had according to His human nature, and it was the eternal Son of God who acted through them. And this was from the moment of conception. Fourth, Since the Divine Son is the subject of the human nature and is now able to live, think, and act in His human nature, as well as continue to do so in His divine nature, and we'll come to talk more about that, especially under the heading extra, the extra Calvinisticum, the Son is now able to experience a fully human life. The Son, not the divine nature, but the person of of the second person of the Trinity, is able to experience a fully human life through the Incarnation. Um, And I hope you could see why it is so important for us to distinguish between nature and person, um, both in our theology proper, our doctrine of God, and that ultimately enables us to think clearly about Christology, uh, about the Incarnation. So, the language of in-hypostatic union is, is very helpful it's an improvement upon earlier language used in the, Chalce, uh, in the Chalcedonian definition. Let's talk now about the communicatio idiomatum. This is a really interesting um, uh, idea here that, that, that I think is very helpful. And it, it's, it's really dealing with the question of the relationship between the two natures, the divine and the human, in the one person of Christ. 
What exactly is the relationship between the two natures given their union in the Son? What exactly is the relationship between the two natures given their union in the Son? Does the divine nature permeate the human nature while remaining distinct? And this was an idea that existed before um, before um, this period of time that we're referring to uh, and I'm losing the word right now and so I'm trying to delay the, the, con- the, the Council of Constantinople uh, and it is called perichoresis and was made famous by one John of Damascus and we say no we confess instead the communication of attributes the Latin being the communicatio idiomatum the communication of attributes. Has anyone ever heard of the communication of attributes, that idea before? Okay. Let, let, me try to, let, me, let me try to explain it. And I think my thinking on this subject has been clarified over the past couple of years, actually. First, communicatio teaches that the attributes of each nature are communicated not to the natures, but to the person of the Son. The attributes of each nature are communicated... They're joined together in, not the natures, but to the person of the Son. So let's talk about some of God's divine attributes. uh, The the attributes that God the Son possesses according to His divinity. Uh, God the Son is eternal. Had no beginning, will have no end. God the Son is omnipresent has no boundaries to his existence whatsoever, but is infinite. Uh, He is unchanging, unchangeable, we might even say. These are some of the main attributes of the divine nature. Uh, If we talk about human nature, though, uh, human beings are not eternal in the way that God is eternal. Human beings have a beginning. Um, Human beings do change. We learn We make progress, hopefully, in wisdom. Uh, We grow in stature. I'm using some of those words very carefully because the scriptures say that Christ grew in stature and and, and in understanding and in wisdom. Um, We we are limited in in space. We are not omnipresent. So how how do these two things relate in the one person of Christ? And we're saying that these these attributes... Uh, they're not communicated from nature to nature. That would be a problem, right? So as to make Christ something more than human but less than God. There's no mixture here. And it's not even that the divine nature permeates the human nature while remaining distinct so as to make Christ able to be our Savior. But instead, these, these attributes that are unique to the divine and to the human, they find their connection They find their connection with one another in the person of the Son. That's what this doctrine of the communicatio idiomatum is teaching. It's dealing with the question of the relationship of the two natures, and it's saying that we must connect these things in the person of the Son and not in the natures of Christ. This is why Scripture can say, this is why the Scriptures can say simultaneously that the Son is eternal, omnipotent, and so on. All attributes of the divine nature. And the scriptures can also say that the Son is born, 
the sun is weak, the sun is embodied, um, the sun thirsts, the sun is hungry, the sun is tired, the sun grows in wisdom, the sun grows in stature. Uh, it, it, who, is, who is the person? Who are we talking about here? Who's the person? The sun. It's the eternal Son of God that we are talking about here. The person is the Son, and yet we are saying both of these things about Him all at once, that He is, he is these things that only God is, and He is these things that we are. He experiences these things that we do as human beings. And this is made possible only through the Incarnation. How can the Scripture say this? What's true of each nature is true of the Son, who is the subject of both. What's true of each nature is true of the Son, who is, in fact, the subject of both. This is why you can look in the book of Acts, and I, th- I think it is this Acts 20:28 20, passage um, that is cited here. And it, it's kind of the famous example of this. The church was purchased by the blood of God. I mean, you read that phrase, and you, blood of God? That contradicts everything we know to be true about God. God does not have blood. So why do the Scriptures speak in this way? Why do the Scriptures talk about the church being redeemed by the blood of God? Well, we may speak in this way because of the Incarnation. Because the person of the Son did in fact bleed for His church. The person of the Son did in fact bleed through His church. And what nature did he do that through? He's the acting subject. What nature did he do that through? Not his divine, but his human nature. Here's where I'll say my, my um, thinking on this has been clarified a bit over the past couple of years. I used to think that the, this idea of communi- communicatio idiomatum um, was basically giving us the permission to speak imprecisely. Um, Because of the Incarnation, it's okay to say that God bled for His church. But really, you know what we mean. It's an imprecise way of speaking, but it's permitted, given the union of the natures in the the person of the Son. I, I think over time I've come to see that this is not even an imprecise way of thinking, but it is actually how things are. That God did bleed for His church. To atone for her sins. Not in his nature. He can, God cannot bleed. According to his nature. But in his personhood. If I, if I may speak in that way. Through, God the second person of the Trinity. Bled for his church. Through the incarnation. And through his human nature in particular. Uh, so that God the son did truly suffer and die for us. Person, not, not nature. Person, not nature. Some of you are looking at me like, I think pastor has slipped. This is, um, this is, this is orthodox Christology. Um, it's really detailed theological language that's being used. It's theological language that had to be wrestled with over a long period of time. We would really be foolish to ignore the work that was done in almost the first 500 years of the church as certain heresies were popping up and had to be addressed. And remember that 
One of the main concerns of the theologians in these days, and this should be one of our main concerns as well, was not only that we speak with precision concerning Christ, His natures, and His person. One of their main concerns is that our salvation in Him be protected. This is really about this is really about soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. You remember the idea that. What is not assumed cannot be healed. What is not assumed cannot be redeemed. Um, The Son of God assumed a human nature, body and soul, with all of its capacities, mind, will, and affections, so as to lift humanity, all who are united to Christ by faith, human nature, uh, to glory. And that which is not assumed cannot be redeemed. That's really the, the, the concern of these theologians, is that if we don't get this right, it really does damage to our understanding of our salvation. Uh, for example, if Christ did not have a human will, then your human will is not healed. Your human will is not redeemed. But in fact, in Christ, through faith in Him, by the working of the Holy Spirit, and based upon the work that He has done, you have been set free from bondage to sin. Before Christ, your wills were in bondage. They were free to make choices, but in bondage to sin, so that you willingly did that which was contrary to God. That is no longer true of you if you are in Christ Jesus, because you have been set free by Him. And He has set you free through the Incarnation, by taking to Himself a true human will, and by willingly doing that which was pleasing to the Father, constantly being upheld by the power of the Holy Spirit, because He was God's anointed one. And because He willed to do that which was pleasing to the Father constantly throughout His life, He was exalted to glory as the God-man. So, He has earned your salvation. He has redeemed you and has the ability to heal you, to heal all who have faith in Him, because He has assumed a human will. And the same thing can be said regarding human affections. The same thing can be said regarding the human mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Christ has the power to redeem and heal your mind, which was darkened due to sin, because he had a human mind and honored God in it and was raised to glory. And he also has the ability to heal and to redeem your body too. And that is why we confess that on the last day, the bodies of those united to Christ will be raised unto glory. This is all because of the incarnation. Uh, This is such important work. In the time we have remaining, uh, let's talk about these two other significant concepts of communicatio that are mentioned here. These are less familiar, but the communicatio uh, uh, operationum, that is the communication of operations. Let's just speak English from now on. Um, This is about Christ's work, and the idea is that Owing to the union of the natures in the Son, the Lord's entire work is a divine human work. And as such, He is able to save us completely. So because of the union of the natures in the person of the Son, 
everything that Christ did, He did as the the God-man. It is true that we can look at some of the things that He did and attribute uh, that that work to to the one nature or to the other. Um, When Christ healed, we we go, that's something that you know, that, that's something owed to the divine. Um, when, he was, uh, when, he, when he bled for us, we might say properly, he's bleeding according to the human nature. But because the divine nature and the human nature are, are truly united in the, one, in, in the person of Christ, all of his works, they are not divided, but they are one. Everything that he does, he does as the God-man, as Christ, who is God with us. And therefore, you see it here in Wellam's comment, he is able to save us completely. So everything that he does is done in the flesh and for us, but with the power of God. Secondly, we can talk about the communication of gifts or graces. This is also about Christ's work, but especially as it pertains to the relations between the Son and the Spirit. This is very interesting. Scripture links the Spirit's work to the incarnate Son very closely. Jesus was not only conceived by the Holy Spirit, He was also given the Spirit without measure, John 3, 34. Thus enabling Him as a man to live and act in obedience to His Father as our Redeemer. It's the Spirit's unique indwelling empowering and anointing work that best makes sense of these graces that that Christ possessed, so that Jesus, as the last Adam, renders human obedience for us by the Spirit. I think the idea is this. Why was Christ able to endure the temptation uh, that He did endure throughout His life and and not fail? What was it that upheld Him? I think that this doctrine here is saying we we ought to look not so much to the divine nature, um, but rather to the Spirit's work of anointing upon the Son. Messiah means anointed one. Christ means anointed one. So Jesus, our Messiah, was anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure and was therefore empowered to live a perfectly human life for us in order to be our, our Redeemer. There's other things that come into play ultimately here, but I, I think um, the idea is that we should not overlook this idea of anointing by the Spirit, so that the incarnation from beginning to end really is a work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, though it properly terminates on the Son alone. Uh, the Spirit is the one who is upholding and empowering Christ to do the work that God gave him to do. Oh, and I have this remark here. Read the second full paragraph on page 117 through to the next heading on page 118 for more clarification. I thought we were at the end. I forgot about that. Um, We don't have time to do that. I I would encourage you to do it. Here, uh, uh, Wellam points out John Owen's helpful work on this subject. Let me just read the last little part of it. The Son in His human nature, the Son in His human nature, is not infused with omniscience, as Owen commented. Christ's human nature remains completely human, yet the Spirit fills Him with light and wisdom. 
to the utmost capacity of a creature, but it was so not by being changed into a divine nature or essence, but by communication of the Spirit unto, unto it without measure. This not only accounts for why the Spirit is the constant companion of the Lord Jesus, but also explains how Jesus serves as our true covenant head, representing, obeying, and living by the Spirit so as to secure His work for us. So, He endured temptation as a man being anointed by the Holy Spirit. He possessed wisdom like no other being anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And and on and on we can go. In His humanity... Uh, he was able to be the, the perfect man, the true man, the, 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 the last Adam for us uh, because of the empowering of the Holy Spirit that was upon him. He was anointed beyond measure. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this rich teaching. And it comes to us from the history of the church. Lord, help us to be mindful of those who have gone before us and these great doctrines that have been wrestled with and established long ago. Your Word, O Lord, is our authority for truth in a primary way. We thank You for those who have gone before us who have wrestled so deeply with Your Word and who have given us these statements and have taught us how to speak concerning the Scriptures. O Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to Your Word in all things, that we would cast off all that does not align with it, that we would receive all that does. But help us to be humble, O Lord, and to value those who have gone before us. Father, do clarify all of these truths in our minds so that we might love You and Christ more deeply. In His name we pray. Amen.